Hey, if you've got your Bible, turn with me to John chapter 6. We're going to be uh, starting actually in verse 25. If you remember last week, uh, we talked about Jesus feeding uh, the 5,000 and, and, and the miracle that that was. And then uh, he has to kind of escape that situation uh, because people want to make him a king. And, uh, and so then uh, he meets his uh, disciples. He actually walks on water and meets them in a boat. And so we find that the crowd was actually searching for Jesus. And uh, they couldn't find him. And so we pick it up in verse 25. It says that when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. But do not, look, do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What works do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. It's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. My first sermon, the first sermon that I ever gave was when I was 18 years old, I was a junior high intern. I lived in an intern house, which is generally not a great idea, the concept of an intern house, because we just destroyed this house, and um, I, uh, I, I, I forgot how to live as a human being, I'll just say, when I was there. Um, but um, we, by, I was able to live in the house for free if part-time I served as a middle school intern at the church. And um, I had another job. I worked at an insurance company. Uh, I was an intake operator for an insurance company. So if you fell at Kmart and got hurt 
and you needed to call the number for the insurance adjuster, you got me, and I took all the information from you. So I was at work, and I was working on my very first message. Uh, the, the, the youth pastor said to me, he says, it's your first week as an intern, so I want you to teach, uh, and uh, you teach on whatever you want because we're not doing a series or anything. You teach him whatever you want, you know, thinking that's good, that, that'll be easy uh, for him. And so I, uh, I said, okay. So I sat down at my other job. That's right, I'm doing two jobs at once here. And, uh, and I was in between calls, and I sat down to write my message. And so I got out a piece of paper, and I just sat there with a Bible and a pen and a piece of paper, and I just had nothing. I was like, I have nothing to say. I, I, don't, I don't know what to talk about. I don't even know what part of the Bible I should talk about. Uh, you know, they, I, I was good at talking, uh, and I was bad at listening. So it seemed like, okay, those things, I should be better at this. But I just, I had nothing. I was like, okay, I've got to think about what I'm going to talk about out of the Bible. I'll start with that. Okay, how about I talk about the Bible? That's that's pretty, can't mess that up, right? Okay, so I'll talk about the Bible. The Bible's important, right? You just tell middle schoolers the Bible's important. So, okay, do I know anything in the Bible that talks about the Bible? Um, oh, there's one about, um, there's like a passage about it being like a sword, you know? It's like got two edges or it like cuts stuff away. So, okay, I'll find that. So I found that. Okay, good. I'll teach on that. That's good. As you can see, I had not been to Bible college yet, by the way. This is not like post-Bible college. That would be a really bad thing. Um, and, uh, and so I, I uh, okay, I got my passage. Bibles is a big thing. You know, it does lots of good stuff. Okay, now what could I say about it? I have nothing. Okay, what... What is there? To, what should I say? I have, I don't know what to say. And I was completely blank. And I was like, now what? And I thought, okay, uh, think of something relatable. Uh, the middle schoolers, what kind of stuff the middle schoolers like? Um, they, uh, they, they, I, they play video games. Okay, I, at the time, apart from having two part-time jobs, I was also playing a lot of video games so that I could relate to that. So, and I was spending a lot of time playing this video game called Tomb Raider. And um, I was very heavily invested in this game. And so I, I had learned that you can go to the store and for like 20 bucks, you can buy something called a walkthrough. And the walkthrough basically tells you how to beat the game, but it still takes you a long time to beat the game. And if you're um, an older person, and at this point you're going, why would anyone do this? I don't know, but it was enjoyable. And so I was like, that's it. The Bible is like a walkthrough for your life. Oh, junior middle school is going to love this. They're going to love it. The Bible is, a, is like an instruction manual for your life. I see Justin just writing this down frantically. This is so good. This is so good. I know what I'm going to preach on the week the baby's born. I'm just going to preach on this, right? <laughs> the Bible is an instruction manual for life. This is so good. Okay, so, 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 so hey, kids, um, if, you, if you read the Bible and if you use the Bible in your life, then it will tell you how to avoid making all the wrong choices and decisions. You won't fall in those pits full of spikes. You won't, you won't lose against all the big bosses at the end of the level. You'll know how to get where you need to go and get all the coins in life. I don't know. Um, and, uh, and that's how the Bible is for you, right? It's not just some dusty old book that doesn't matter for you. It's the instruction book for your life. If they made a walkthrough for your life, it would be the Bible, right? Now, for, now fortunately, I think middle school, I don't think they were really listening very closely at the time. And so I probably didn't mess them up too much. But there was this point that I got into Bible. Uh, uh, so I went to seminary. Yes, you're, you're good. You're like, okay, good. He did go to seminary. I did go there. 
And, and, I, and I started to kind of learn stuff and go, okay, I'm getting to the point now where some of the things that I've said, I wouldn't say again. I probably would say I disagree with those things. You know, I, I would say I would teach this differently. And this happens a lot. Hopefully this happens a lot to pastors as they learn more out of the Bible. They go, you know what? I think if I were to give that sermon again, that message, you know, I wouldn't give the same message. I'd say something different. I would say throughout my walk and my time in ministry, I would probably have given different messages on what the Bible itself is there for, right? And I think that we, um, we often think about the Bible kind of like that. And I, you would say, you know, uh, is, it, is, it a, is it a list of rules? Is it something that I'm supposed to do, right? Is it, a, is it like a walkthrough, an instruction book for life that if you listen and do what this thing says, then your life is going to go well, is it, a, is, it like a, is it a book like a science book? Is it, is, it, is it something that is to inform us scientifically of information and that's really it? Or is it a philosophy book? Is it one that gives us the right perspective on philosophically how we're supposed to approach the world? Is it a way to do things like how to raise kids, how to have a successful marriage, how to date, right? All those different things. Is the Bible where I'm supposed to get all that information from? And what I've come to, to see over the years is that ultimately when you look at the Bible in its entirety, look at the Old and the New Testament, you look at the narratives that run throughout both of those things, you begin to see that very, very clearly there's only really one thing that you can say, the Bible itself, as an inspired by God text, is ultimately about in every portion of it. And it is this, it is about God. You're like, oh, okay, come on, seriously, how much, how much money did you pay for that one, right? Uh, it's about a person, God. In the Old Testament, you primarily see it through God himself, the Father. In the New Testament, much of what you see is through the Son, the person of who Jesus is. But if you ever open up the Bible and you read anything in the Bible, you're going to be looking at something that the main character there, the main person in that is God. Whether it's through the Father or through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, right? It's God. And then the secondary thing is, is whether it's me or you, whether it's about something else that it deals with, but ultimately, all of the Bible points us to the most important thing that we can possibly know, which is who God is. And the idea behind this is there is nothing more important that we can ever possibly know in life than that. There is nothing more important that we can know in life than who God is. We can understand him as fully as possible that we can understand who Jesus is. God helped us out quite a bit by sending Jesus, who actually lived it out, said, okay, if you want to know what it looks like, look at him. It's me, and it's lived out in the flesh. And so Jesus helps us out tremendously in this. Here in the book of John, he starts doing this thing throughout where he gives these statements about who he is. He goes into so much detail. He communicates exactly the way that we need him to communicate so we can really understand fully what he's talking about. He says, here's who I am. And he has these statements. They're called the I am statements. And they're called that because it's times in the, in the gospel of John when Jesus says, I am, starts describing himself, and then he says this thing. It's like a word picture. And here we read the very first one where Jesus says to these people, after feeding thousands of people miraculously, after walking across water and calming the storm, showing he has authority over all nature and everything, he then uses that opportunity to say to people the first time, I am, and he says, I am the bread of life, is what he says to them. So there is nothing more important 
that we could do than know God. He says here in John 6, 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and will raise him up on the last day. So he's saying, if you look on me and if you believe in me, it's all about me. It's all about who I am. If you look on me and believe in me, you will have eternal life. We read about it in the Psalm, Psalm 115. The psalmist is describing in the first few verses of that chapter, all of what happens when a person worships idols and how it messes them up. And he says this in verse eight, those who make them, which is idols, they become like them. So do all who trust in them. What he's saying is, is the thing that you focus on and worship, you'll not only center your life around that thing, you'll become like that thing. So the very things that we set our mind on and our hearts on and we worship, we become like those things. So we, 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 we say the most important thing that you could possibly do is know about who God is, not just to know something, not even just to have eternal life, but because you will be shaped by the thing that you make effort to know about, to, to, live, to live in the midst of, to live in light of. And so these I am statements are Jesus stopping and saying, I want to make it as clear as humanly possible when given the opportunity by the things I'm doing miraculously to show you who I am. And so in this interaction with these people, everything is kind of led up to this. Now, now what it says that he did, it's, it's really important, is that he, he went out and he fed these thousands of people after healing them and preaching to them. Like pe- people had come out from everywhere to find him. These are not just Jewish people. These are everybody. These are not just religious people. These are people that heard this guy Jesus can heal. He can feed, do all these things. And he feeds all these thousands of people. And then he goes, in, goes away with his disciples and he comes back the next day. And, and it says they came searching for him. They were trying to find where he was. Why? Because they wanted more food. Pretty simple. They're like, he feeds. He fed us yesterday. He'll feed us today. So they come looking for him and they find him. If you read at the very end of this passage, they find him in the synagogue in Capernaum. So they go to the Jewish synagogue where he is, bringing all these people who wouldn't normally be there in the midst of all these religious people who are always there and don't really think about that much. And then he says, now that I've got everyone together, this is who I am. And he describes himself to them. Now, there's three things that Jesus does in this interaction. He gives them a truth, he asks them a question, and he tells them something that's real, okay? He kind of makes them this promise and tells them this thing about reality. So the first thing that he does is all this stuff that he's doing, it shows them something. Shows them something that's real, that they need to kind of base their understanding of everything that moves forward on this, and it's this, miracles happen. Okay, so I feed all these people. How do I do it? I do it miraculously. I, miracles happen with me, right? With God, the miraculous happens. With me, Jesus, the miraculous happens. He, uh, he walks on water. That's miraculous. He calms the storm. That's miraculous. He has authority over all of these things. And we've seen him heal people and do all this other stuff. And so the truth is, he's saying, you live in a world in which the miraculous happens through God. Now, we have a very simple understanding of the world we live in, and it is this. Miraculous doesn't happen, okay? Two plus two always equals four, right? The math, it's pretty basic. It's pretty simple. It's mostly addition. So you're like, okay, good. I can stick with addition. And, uh, and it doesn't really get beyond that. If you have this, you will get this. If this happens, it will lead to this. If you amass or accumulate this, then your life will look like this. When you bring God into that, you then throw all the math up in the air. It kind of starts to go crazy. And you say, this doesn't always lead to this. These circumstances don't always lead to this outcome. And there are points at which God will intervene. And we see it happen all throughout the Bible. 
And Pastor Matt was telling us this last week that because of this, what these miracles say, what this says to us about the world we live in is that all of the normal rules get thrown out the window and we live in this entirely different reality than we used to live in. We don't live in a world in which only certain things happen and they're the things that we can explain, we can measure, we can reproduce to our own desire. He says these other things happen as well and they are miraculous. Resources don't mean what they used to. The economy that we live in isn't the same economy that other people live in. These are not the only factors. We have a very limited thought in our understanding of miracles, in the Bible even. We think of a miracle as something happens, and then you say, God fixed this miraculously, and then he does, and that's a miracle, right? So if he does that, God does a miracle. If he doesn't, God didn't do a miracle, and that's it, right? Uh, but the way that the Bible conveys miracles, and it's filled with them, miraculous things happening where God intervenes in what we would say is kind of the natural order, it seems, is, is really what he does is you see, you see hundreds of years in between people asking for something and something happening. You see people living in slavery and bondage in Egypt for hundreds of years saying, God, deliver us, God, deliver us, deliver us. And, uh, and hundreds of years go by with the people saying, where is he? Why is he not responding? Why is he not delivering us? And him ultimately then delivering his people, not the way they thought he would. Giving them a nation to begin with, not the way that they thought that he would give them a nation to begin with, Right? Uh, that, that, that he, he rescues them, and, and, and you even see hundreds of years in between the Old and New Testament when the prophets stop talking to the God's people on his behalf, and they're saying, God, where are you? Where is he? Why is there silence? Where is he? Help us, save us. Now we're living under Roman authority. We don't like that. Would you come save us? You're our God. You're supposed to do that, right? Hundreds of years go by. He begins to speak to his people again. But how does he do it? He doesn't do it the way they think he's going to do it. He doesn't do it the way they ask him to do it. What does Jesus do? Does he set them free from the Roman oppressors? No, not the way that they want him to. He miraculously helps them, comes to them, responds to them, but he doesn't do it in the way that they specifically ask him to. Rarely did God respond with exactly the person's idea of a solution and the timing they had in mind, or even just by giving them a solution and being done with it. We even see through almost every character in the Bible, every person we see when they interact with God that they almost never get things the way they ask for them or want them specifically. We see that God says, you've brought me into this thing, now I'm going to respond to it in the way that I respond. And he'll do it miraculously. But it won't be the cut and dry way that we tend to think about miracles today. And we have this addition and we apply it to the, the way we understand these miracles. And we say, I need God to respond. I need him to do something. And if he does, he's miraculous. And if he doesn't, he's not. And the addition factors in, if I have enough money, then I will be okay. If I have the right people around me, I will be okay. If I'm healthy, I will be okay. If I can finally get my house clean, I will be okay. If I can go to bed tonight, I will be okay. If I can get these kids out, I will be okay. If I can have kids, I will be okay. If I can just do these things, have these things, get these things, save enough, have enough, work enough, receive enough, figure out enough, accomplish enough, then, then I will be okay. That's what the math always evens out to. And when something happens that messes that up, we say, God, would you come into this and would you fix it? Would you get me back on track? Would you provide for me? Would you give me the thing that gives me life, that will sustain me? 
You see, if you believe in miracles, you believe that there's a whole different economy. Because if he is this great, and if we can really trust him, then that means that he will intervene in things. And I can tell you that I have seen miraculous things happen. I've seen, I've seen literally the things people have asked for miraculously given to them in the way they've asked. I've seen it work that way. I've seen people healed. I've seen things happen supernaturally, not coincidentally, but supernaturally in a way that you cannot explain. And it is obvious that God's doing that. But I have also seen the biggest miracles that I've seen, the biggest, the most miraculous things I've seen have been the things that not only defy the math and how it adds up, but seem to work the exact opposite of that. I, I, have, seen, I have seen two people married to each other. And I've talked to one who has said to me, I hate my spouse. They are, they are my enemy. If I have an enemy in this world, if I have a person who I'm like, they really are messing up my life and they're, they're in the way of my life being what I really honestly just want it to be, it's the person I'm married to. And I've seen that same person a year later say, I love my spouse. I don't feel that way anymore. And the only reason why that is is because of the things that God miraculously did throughout us in this last year. I've seen people watch kids go away and, and wreck their lives and build up baggage, things that you can't ever just come back from and yet come back from those things. People that like we honestly just give up on. And I've seen that miraculously happen in a way and you go, man, there is no way to explain the way that that person would be restored in this way without saying that, that God did that miraculously. I have seen people suffering be healed, but I have also seen people who have suffered be more productive in their life than those who are healthy. I have seen people lose a lot and still do more than people who have everything and are capable of doing things, whether it's their health or their resources. I've seen people with less doing more. I mean, I've seen people who, who, who financially have less, who have less relationships, who have less things in their life, still be able to actually do more. I mean, isn't this the reason why we don't want to have less? We don't want to have less because we want to do more, right? We don't want to be sick. We don't want to be suffering and dying because we want to be able to do more. We want to be able to do the things that we want to do. I have seen people with less still do vastly more because of what God is able to do in them and through them, regardless of even the fact that they have less. What we see in, in the way that the world works, where Jesus is able to actually do the miraculous, is we see that the addition is not the same. You see, instead of like two plus two equals four, there is still some math involved, but it's like what you would expect in some PhD level, you know, I don't even know what they would call the course, honestly, but it's just math course, we'll say. And, and you go in and it's a chalkboard, it's full of just stuff that makes no sense. And at the end it says like X equals four. And you go... Okay, four, all right. I don't know what this means. I don't know what it all points to and how it works, but this somehow equals that. That's all I know. And that's ultimately the way that it ends up working. You just go, I, I, I don't know how God did what he did. I don't know how he did this thing, but it equals that. And that's the only thing that I can really tell you for sure. And so these people, seeing that he can do the miraculous, even in some of the simplest ways, like feed them bread, they come back to him and they say, all right, feed us again. And his response to them, we read this. 
When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. What Jesus does is this thing that he's really good at doing and it drives us crazy. They see that he does miracles. They see that he gives something. He's got something to offer. And so they come to him. They're looking for it. And his first response to them is, I know why you're here. And most of you aren't really here for the right reasons. Uh, He's saying to them, I know why you're here. You're here because I fed you yesterday. Now you want me to feed you today. That's not a very noble reason to come seek me, right? That's not a very noble reason to go seek God in the flesh. Or even the fact that he's a rabbi. He's a teacher. He's one who like really answers your spiritual questions. And yet they just come back to him honestly because they want more food, right? What Jesus does is he basically is like, when he says this, we, we read this and you think about it, and it's this question that gets posed to every single one of us, and it's this. It's the question is, why are you here? Because I do the miraculous, I provide, I feed people. Physically, he filled their bellies up with bread and fish. He healed people's sicknesses. And so the question, why are you here? For most of the people that Jesus is talking to, they are there because he did something miraculous. They wanted him to do it again. They wanted him to feed them again. But there's another group of people who are there because they're in the synagogue. These people didn't go follow Jesus around. They didn't seek him out. They would just happen to be at church when Jesus showed up. They're like, who's this guy? And who are all these people with him? Why are they there? They're there because that's just what they do. They go to the synagogue. They go all the time. They probably don't think much about why they're there. They're just there because that's the thing that they do and they don't think much about it. These people all came for a reason. And man, people come here to the Bible, to Jesus for all kinds of different reasons. And if we think for a second that Jesus requires us to have pure motives or to be approaching him for the right reason, then we misunderstand what's going on in the Gospels. He knows that people are not approaching him for the right reason half the time. They don't even really understand who he is or what he's about. And what he shows us here is that he really doesn't care why people are approaching him. He's like, I don't care if you're here for food, if you're here because I walked into your church and you couldn't get out in time. I don't care if you're here because uh, you're following me around because you think I have the secrets to eternal life and you want to know what those things are. I don't care if you're here because your life's a mess and you need someone to fix you. I don't care if you're here because the world's a mess and you need a reason to be angry at them and you think I'll give you new reasons than the old ones. I don't care why you're here. What I care is what you do from this point on because I have something to teach you. Jesus does not care why all these people are there, but he takes the opportunity to teach every single one of them the same thing, not a different thing. It's not like I have a different thing to give each and every one of you. I'm going to tell you something, and it applies to all of you, no matter who you are or what you're here for. He says, you are coming to me, and here's what he says to them. He says, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. You are here working for something that perishes. You're looking for something to fill you up that will perish. You, it says that they came to him and they said to him, you, will you always give us this bread? Will you always give us this thing? They have a totally distorted understanding of what actually is important and what actually matters. They want one kind of thing, and he wants to give them another kind of thing. 
I think my slides are messed up. Hang on. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. He says, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So he's saying to them, you're here for something that will perish. I offer you something that doesn't. Stop trying to fill yourself up with things that perish. When Jesus sees the woman at the well, he says the same thing to her about water. He, he, he says, I have a water for you. You will never thirst after this water. You're thinking of a water that's going to leave you thirsty again tomorrow. You're all used to the idea that we live in a world where you, you fill yourself up with something and you're empty the next day, right? No matter what that thing is. And bread is representative of something. It's not just talking about what's in your stomach. He's obviously talking about something much bigger than that. He's talking about the, the thirst and the hunger that drives all of us. Like, like existentially that drives us. And he's saying, you're seeking to be filled by something that will perish every day. You're going to run out of it. And then you're going to ask for it to be filled up again. But I'm not here to give you something every day that will fill you up each day. I have something to give you that does not perish. Each day begins with hunger pangs for different things. More of something. And we we come to Jesus because we see that you can get more things out of Jesus. You can. We, we come to church and we come to the Bible and we come to Jesus because we go, you, he actually can give me more wisdom than I had before. He can give me more compassion than I had before. He can make me better than I was before. He can give me relationships that are profoundly better than they were before. He can actually show me what it is to be a parent in a way that I couldn't have before. He can show me what it is to be in a marriage, in a relationship. He can show me what it is to be a hard worker. He can give me the wisdom and the civility and the thoughtfulness that can help me even be successful in life in ways that are entirely unspiritual. That there are so many ways that he can fill me up as I pursue these things in my life that really matter to me. The things that I hunger for. The relationships and the stuff and the significance and all of the competition and all of the things that actually fill me up in my pursuit of things in this life. And he says, you may find those things in me but they're going to perish. I offer you a bread. I offer you something that doesn't perish. It goes on eternally. We have a really hard time with this because we are really bad at prioritizing things that matter. We, we have a very weird way of valuing things based on their, their, really how much they matter. I love this chart. It's like the best, oh my gosh. Okay, it's like the best thing ever. Don't, don't you dare. Don't you dare write any of that down that you just saw. I looked. At, I found this chart a few years ago, and it's and it's and it's relative prices of different liquids. Okay, and the very lowest one, the bottom one, is crude oil. Okay, and that's pretty important in our world, right? Yeah, it's kind of important, right? Right up from that, bottled water, still so low. The price of water, the very thing that you know, kind of keeps us alive. The the price of water is so low, it really doesn't even come up off the ground there. Then you get things like uh, like Red Bull. That's important if you're just in. You get things like 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 vodka. You get stuff like a, a refrigerant that I guess costs a lot of money. You get penicillin. That's important. You get human blood. Human blood's really high up there. That's good, right? We need blood. They made it the color of blood. That's good. But the highest one exponentially above everything else is Hewlett Packard Black Printer Ink. <laughs> like like per part, 
That's how valuable black printer ink is. If, if you've ever bought printer ink, you're like, amen, right? Now, I've never seen a very, I've never seen a movie about like a sh- worldwide shortage of printer ink that led to like, you know, this very exciting, I'm sure they'll make one, it'll be a superhero movie, it'll make all the money in the world. But, but the things that we actually need, right, to, to kind of make life happen, we, we need some of the other things on this list. And yet you look at the priority, the value that we place on something that people know they can get money for, right? And it shows you this. I was talking to my father-in-law yesterday about what he does for a living, which is use steam to purify water in the Middle East. And believe it or not, people, you know, kind of living in the desert, they're like, water, water's, you know, it's important. We want to we wanna have some of that, right? And we'd like to have clean water too, right? So they use all this energy and all this technology and all this stuff to figure out how to have something as simple as clean water. Why? Because without clean water, we will perish. We will die. Our, our, we, we depend on it. We rely on it. No matter how valuable, you could liquefy diamonds, you know? They probably still won't cost as much as printer ink. But no matter how valuable other liquids may seem to us, the thing that we really need that really gives us life is like the cheapest, freest thing that we can get, right? We don't think about it that way at all. It comes out of, comes out of fountains for free. It's actually funny, like, you know, you go to a park, it's at a water fountain, we don't think that's a weird thing, but if you, like, go to Italy, it's coming out of the wall, they have these fountains where it just comes out of the wall, and they're going, I'm like, look at that, it's not really that different, right? They're wasting water, right? We have a very weird way of understanding what's really important and valuable. Jesus is saying to these people, you fill yourselves up with this bread, with this stuff that sustains you, but it will perish every time. It will go away. It will not last. And what you want me to do, if you're honest, is you want me to use my power to miraculously give you more of the thing that you need to fill you up. And he says, but what you need is something that will not leave you hungry again later, again and again and again. What you need is something that will fill you up eternally. And he says, I am the bread of life. Now, I love bread. And this was going to be a really long message. Just there was going to be a whole section on bread, you know, because it's bread, right? I mean, you go to a restaurant, is there anything better than like you go to Bugatti's and they're like, why do they even ask you, right? You take your order and they go, would you like us to bring you out some, you know, focaccia bread? What do you think? You know, like, yeah. In fact, if anybody here said no, I'd like their bread, right? That should be fair. And then every time you would have brought them more, you bring that to me too. And if you have a problem with that, get the manager because that's the way the world should work, right? That's how much we love bread, right? Bread is very important. Bread gives us life, right? And he says, I am the bread. Bread is a basic thing. He fed them fish too, but you notice he points out the bread and not the fish. You'd think the fish should be the better part of that meal, right? But every society has to have a way of making the staple of their diet. And Jesus is talking about the staple of our diet. He's talking about the thing that is the basis for all the other stuff that we kind of eat. Everything else is extra beyond eating bread and having water. And he says, I am the thing that will fill you up eternally and will give you life. But we are prone to want something other than this thing that gives us eternal life. And so Jesus says that he offers us a gift. It is the thing that he offers. He, he, he tells them about this reality, which is this truth that miracles are real. Miracles happen. He asks them a question, which is, so why are you here? And then he offers these people a gift, every one of them that is there. 
He says, I have a gift for you, and that gift is this. The gift is real life. It's not just life that you'll have to refill again and again and again, keep pursuing after and hope to get a hold of. He says, I offer you a life that is real, that is eternal, and that life I offer you is in me. And we have this problem, and the problem is that if we were honest, we want all of the other stuff he can give us rather than him. We have a tendency to prone to want all of the things that God gives us, but not to want God himself. And it's no different than a child that wants all the things that their parents give them, but don't actually want the parent themselves. You look at the way that God interacted with his people. We went through Exodus last year, and we looked at the way that he miraculously grew up a group of people under the conditions of slavery. Pharaoh did everything he could, including killing children and babies, to keep down uh, the number of Israelites in his country. And what happened? They exploded in population. Why? Because God made that happen. And we see the people, we see him give them a nation of people like he promised. And they're like, all we want is the people. We don't really want to deal with you because we don't like the way you do things. Then they say, God, deliver us. So he brings them out. He gives them freedom. And then they say, good, now leave us alone. We just want freedom. And he says, no, I'm giving you deliverance so you can worship me. And they're like, no, we don't want to worship you. We just want freedom. He wants to give them food. They say, good, give us food so that we can save it up and collect it. And then we don't need you anymore. We'll come and get you when we need you again. But what does he do? He gives them manna. That's what Jesus talks about here. Jesus says manna is the way God fed his people. Why would he feed them in such an infuriating way? Why would he give them bread from the sky that never lasted longer than a day? Because every single day they had to go to bed knowing that if God didn't provide it again, that they wouldn't have food. Why are there two trees in the middle of the garden? Why on earth would he put it in the middle of the garden if he doesn't want to eat out of it, right? I mean, plan it a little bit better. Because every time they reach for the fruit that is good, they choose to not reach from the fruit that is bad. They choose to trust God in what he says and say, I want what you offer because it is better because I want you. What's the name of the other tree? The knowledge of good and evil. What does it do? It makes you like God. Either I want God or I just want to be like him so I don't need him anymore. All of the things that God gives his people, they are prone to continually want to take that thing and say, thank you, God, I'm done with you because what I really want is to be independent. We are not all lying, cheating, murdering, thieving, jealous people. We are all people who want independence. That's what all of those other things come from. And at any opportunity, that's what we would want. God, would you give me enough to get me to a point where I can be free, including from you? where I don't need this life that you offer in you. I need a life that I can achieve myself. What does it mean to actually want God over all of the things that he can give us? What would it mean to actually want Jesus more than to want him to fill our bellies with the bread that we search for all day? What would it mean to actually believe him when he says, I'm the bread of life? If you have me, if you know me, If you have a relationship with me, you will be filled up. And even if the math doesn't add up in the end, you will still be a person who is fulfilled and who is filled up because you have real life. You're not spending all your time chasing after the same things as everyone else, wondering why isn't this God real enough that he answers my prayers? Because you're you're asking him to be real only for you to do the same thing that everyone else does, and which means finding life apart from him. He says, I am the bread of life. I will give you life, and that will be real, real life. 
I started seeing a counselor like six months ago, and one of the things that he said to me, they really do say this. He said, he, he talked about a happy place, okay? And it's like not a joke, okay? And he said, you know, what is like the happy place? And I was like, what are you talking about, you know? Um, and he said, you know, what is like a mental image of just the greatest moment, the most peaceful time, the most, the most serene time, because you want to have an idea of that. And I said, oh, that's easy, because my wife is a photographer. She takes pictures of things. She doesn't like being in pictures. So she has pictures of all my happy moments, and she's not in them, and it's a win-win situation. Um, before she was the photographer, her family just had albums full of photos of her, like, very carefully hiding her face and, like, putting water bottles in front of her face and hiding behind trees. So now she figured it out. So this is my happy place, okay? Okay. This is last summer. We went to Clear Lake. We, the boat was sinking, but she didn't tell me that. Thanks, Steve Marl. She didn't tell me that until after she took the picture, and then we started bailing it out, you know. Uh, you know. Isn't really all of life just I want the water to be not coming in faster than it's going out, right? That's life, right? So, so I'm sitting there with Tegan. We're fishing. Actually, if you were to pan out this picture, that little thing at the bottom is actually Davy's hat. She's laying down asleep on the middle step of this boat. She's asleep in the sun. But, uh, but I had to crop it like this. So this is, this is me and Tegan just spending time together fishing. Ellie has an irrational fear of fish hooks. She was not enjoying this because every time that we cast, she was like thinking that we were going to get her. And... So that wasn't good. So what I want for my son is to know that, that this is real life, more than all of the stuff that I give him. Because he looks to me as someone who just is the source of all the things that he gets in life. He just had a birthday a few months ago, and really it was just a day where he cared about stuff. I want to get this stuff. I want to celebrate it with this stuff. I want to have it with this way. There wasn't a point where he was like, Dad, I really enjoy spending my birthday with you. No, that did not happen on that day. I'm sorry. Maybe other seven-year-olds are like that, but, you know, not Tegan. Now, I just had my birthday on Monday. We went out with some people. There wasn't like there was a point in the middle of the dinner when I stopped and was like, when is the present coming? Like, I don't understand, okay? I'm glad that you're my friends and all, but like I told her what I wanted and she probably could have told you. So is there some point when you're gonna actually give me a present or is this all just a waste of my time? <laughs> no, I didn't do that. Why? Because I don't just care about stuff, right? I care about people. I care about these things called relationships. The truth of the matter is that if, if, we, if we had our way, we would be like, just give me the stuff, fill up my belly, take care of me, and just get out of the way. And what God says to us, what Jesus is saying, and he's talking about this bread that gives eternal life, is he isn't pointing to rules. He's not pointing to science. He's not pointing to history. He's not pointing to anything like that, philosophy. He's pointing to himself, and he's saying, this is about you knowing the God who created you to begin with. And if you know me, then you will have real life. And that life will be much more than just a bunch of stuff that I give you and problems that I solve. And I know how bad you want me to solve your problems. That real life will be a life that is in me. That what he wants for us is to say, I really do only care the most about my relationship with him. I want to be with him. I want to be sitting here with him, and I want to be finding my identity in him. That is where real life is found. And if life doesn't come from there, then it's not real life, not the kind that lasts. Every time Jesus says, I am, 
and then he repeats himself by, by, by explaining one of these things. He's telling us something about himself that gives us life. He's telling a group of people who are desperate for healing and desperate for food and don't know anything about God, and he's telling a group of people who just hang out in the synagogue all day and have never really questioned why they're there. And he's saying to all of these people, in me you will have a life that doesn't perish, but it will keep filling you up every day. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for who you are. We are so grateful that you, um, that you care more about the connection that we have with you and us depending on you. And we confess the fact that for many of us, most of us, right here now, even in our own lives, as long as we could have the things that fill us up, fill up our bellies and keep us going for one more day, we don't really have much of an interest in you yourself. And, and we pray that you would simply change our hearts in that, God. As we worship you, as we sing about you, as we reflect on things that are true of you that we struggle to believe each day, may you give us hearts that believe them more so that we can actually have faith in you, not in what you give us, not in the circumstances of our lives, not in a math that adds up, but in you, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Father, we uh, come before you because we know that you want for us to be your children, but you want for us to not stay children, Lord, that you, you want us to mature. You don't want us to become independent and to, to separate ourselves from you and to feel like we're supposed to get to some point in our life where we don't need you anymore, where the things you've given us ought to get us on our own, Lord, that, that we maturity for us means growing into a place where we recognize that you are our father are not the giver of all of our stuff. You're not the source of the things that fill up our bellies, Lord. You're not the one that makes us comfortable, uh, that you're more than that, God, that, that we can have with you a relationship that a child can't simply have with a parent, that, that, that we can look to you for more than just what you give us and how easy you make our life, God. Lord, our prayer is that you would be all that we need, that you would be what fills us up and that without you, that we would recognize that we feel empty, Lord. God, give that to us, yourself, and lead us into whatever kinds of lives that we need to live in order to bring us to you, to see how much we need you, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. Have a great week. Don't